Father, as we, we are right at the Christmas season, would be the day that you would save hearts and change lives. I pray for us as, as believers today. Uh, I, I pray that, that, that we see the Christmas story again for what it is and what it means. Uh, and that, Father, um, with just a few days left until that day, uh, that, that maybe we, we could kind of get our minds and our hearts around what it's really about uh, and set our eyes on Jesus. Thank you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of, of Luke was written by a man named Luke, obviously. Uh, he was a physician, and he was writing this book for a guy named Theophilus. And so what Luke did was he, he traveled around and he interviewed eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus and then came back and wrote down everything that they told him all about Jesus' life from, from the time he was a child all the way until the day he ascended and went back to heaven. Luke spent a lot of time traveling with Paul. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So, so the reason why it's, it's, it's important to know that is because Luke's birth narrative is very compelling. Luke does not begin chapter 2 by saying once upon a time. He doesn't begin chapter 2 by saying long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Instead, Luke begins his narrative with a cold, hard, historical fact. Look at verse 1. It says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So the cold hard fact is that Caesar Augustus was in power. Ancient historians will tell you that, that Caesar Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He was adopted by Julius. He was named the heir uh, of Julius's throne. Caesar Augustus defeated Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium, after which, as you know, Antony and Cleopatra both took their lives. If you don't remember that story, Antony was in love with Cleopatra. He heard that she had died, and so he kills himself. Well, as he's bleeding out, somebody comes up and goes, Hey, she's still alive. Oh, that kind of stinks, right? And so... Then, upon her hearing that he was dead, she allows a poisonous snake to bite her. Upon their death, Augustus ushered in what is known as the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. And that peace was a peace, but it was a brutal peace. It was a peace that was kept by the edge of a sword. R. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, there was peace, but it was a dark peace, a Hitler's peace, and no man or woman or boy or girl could say a word against it without fearfully looking over his or her shoulder. Augustus was the first to be called Augustus. Augustus just means holy or revered, and up until he took the throne, that title was only reserved for the gods. And at the time of Luke's writing, some of the Greek cities had begun to adopt Augustus' birthday on September 23rd as the first day of the new year. And what they would do is they would celebrate that day and they would hail Caesar as Savior and Lord. In fact, we have some inscriptions at that time that claim that he was the Savior of the entire world. When Augustus died, we have accounts of men comforting themselves with the fact that Augustus was a god and that gods do not die. And so what Luke wants you and I to understand, and the reason he starts with this cold hard fact of history, is that the real savior of the entire world was born right under the nose of one of the most brutal men that's ever lived. Caesar kept a brutal peace. And in order to keep that peace, you had to have an army. In order to fund an army, 
you had to be taxed. And so a village carpenter and his teenage bride were forced to travel to his hometown to be registered for taxation to keep up this brutal army, to keep up this Pax Romana. In verse 4, we read this. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. In the end. So 700 years before this takes place, the prophet Micah had prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And so 700 years before this happened, God promised the Savior's coming. I'm going to bring him into the world. He's going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. Now, everybody listen to me, and I want you to focus on this. Marvel at how God uses governmental authorities for his own purpose. Okay? 2020 is coming. Some of you need to breathe a little bit. Okay? God is in control whether your guy's in the office or whether somebody else is in the office. God will use all things for his purpose. He doesn't need a conservative government to do that. He can use a far-left government to use anything and everything for his purpose. See, God didn't just luck out that Augustus just happened to have a census, right, and, and get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. It's not like he was up there wringing his heads going, oh, my me, oh, my me, what am I going to do? I mean, I made this promise 700 years ago. Now Augustus is in power, and I mean, he's just not the right guy. I, I man, I, whew, I don't know how I'm going to get these people to Bethlehem so I can fulfill that promise. That's going to really be a bad look on me. What am I going to do? No, God had it all planned out from the very beginning. See, there's a weight behind what's happening here. No one gets to decide whether or not their life will glorify God. Everyone's life will bring glory to God. So you will either glorify God by being a trophy of God's grace that he holds up to say, hey, look that I saved a person like that. Or you will, be, you will glorify God by being an object of his just and right wrath. But nobody gets to decide. See, God uses a brutal government to fulfill his plans for humanity. God uses a brutal government to bring glory to himself. He says, Caesar, you think you're God? You're not. I am And right underneath his nose, he sneaks in the Savior of the world. See, every single move that Joseph and Mary made was under the hand of Almighty God. And we should rejoice in that. Because that means that God's sovereign over all things. And whatever happens in our lives is because it's gone through God's hands first and he's allowed it to happen. And what's marvels, or what's amazing to me when, when I read the story of of Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus is that if you're going to write a script for the coming of the Savior in the entire world, the one who's going to right all wrongs, the one who's going to push back the darkness, you're not going to pick a broke carpenter and a girl who is at best 15 years old. 
I mean, that's not the story you're going to write. That's not the story that, that I'm going to write. You're, you're not going to pick dirt poor people. And see, we know that they're dirt poor people because this is a high honor culture. So what that means is that if Joseph showed up and his name had any kind of respect, and he shows up to one of those inns and he says, hey, well, I'm Joseph, this is who I am, somebody's getting booted out of a room that night. Right? Somebody is going, oh, let me make room for you, Mr. Joseph. Oh, let me get the, the red carpet treatment for you, Mr. Joseph. That doesn't happen. He shows up, and there is nowhere for them to stay. And in Bethlehem, the accommodations were very primitive. There are no embassy suites. There are no Airbnbs. The inns that would have been available were very crude. Typically, they were a series of stalls built on the inside of an enclosure and an opening into a common courtyard where all the animals were kept. All the innkeeper provided was fodder for the animals and a fire to cook on. That was it. And so Mary and Joseph arrive, and nothing's available. So, so not even one of these cruel, crude stalls is available for Mary and Joseph. And despite the urgency, there's not a person that makes room for them. Again, it shows you where Joseph stood in society at that time. See, there's a great chance that Mary had Jesus in the common courtyard surrounded by all the animals with only Joseph to attend to her. Again, R. Kent Hughes puts it this way. Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did, seeing her pain, the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation and the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for young Mary on the night of her travail. All that would make a man either curse or cry. Joseph didn't have the clout. He didn't have the money. He didn't have the connections to get a room or even a roof with four walls. So they have a baby in a stable. And this is not a freshly swept county fair stable, guys. This is a nasty, stinking barnyard. The baby's born and they lay it in a feeding trough. Tim Keller says that it's wrong for us to sentimentalize the manger scene. I read that this week and I thought, man, I guess I'd never really thought about that before. So, so whenever we make really cute movies about talking animals, right, that are surrounding the, the manger, all right, we all have the really nice, cute nativity scenes at our house where the animals are all smiling, right? Mary and Joseph are so happy, right? And everybody's smiling. Or, or we make our shirts, right, with sequins and leopard print that say nativity, y'all, right? It's wrong. Now, 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 don't misunderstand me, okay? I know some of you go, well, what am I going to do about my kids, right? I, I get it, right? We have little kids, and, and I understand those things. But as our children get older, though, they should understand that this was not some nice, neat, cute little scene that took place. See, the whole point of the narrative and the fact that it's so quick and succinct is that this is brutal. The nativity is brutality. There's no room. He's poor. They don't have a place to stay. He's in a feeding trough. He is rejected. And this is the pattern of Jesus' life from the very beginning. This is how he's going to save us. This is what he came into the world to do. And see, this is where people always get baffled all the time, right? Especially those who, who aren't Christians. They'll say things like this. Well, well why didn't he just come in power? Like, like the first time, why didn't he just come in power? Why didn't he just come and do away with everything the first time? Why didn't he come with the white horse? Why didn't he come as the general? Why didn't he come with a sword and spear? 
And the answer is very simple. If Jesus came the first time to destroy all the sources of evil, there wouldn't be any of us left. And if you think that's unfair, if you think that's an exaggeration, then let me tell you something. You don't know your own heart very well at all. See, Jesus came the first time to be rejected, not to be accepted, to be destroyed and killed, not to be crowned. He didn't come to bring judgment, but to bear judgment for us and for our sins so that when he returns the second time, he can deal with us as if we've never sinned before. And so the first time he came, he had to come the way he did. And on that Christmas night, no child born in the world seemed to have lower prospects than Jesus. The Son of God came into the world not as a prince, but as a pauper, born to poor parents in the middle of an animal pen. And see, this is where Christianity begins. And this is where it always begins, is with a sense of need. Christianity always begins with a sense of our own insufficiency. And Christ setting the example, he comes to the needy, and he's born only to those who are poor in spirit. Verse 8 illustrates that point really well. It says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Shepherds were despised by good, respectable people that day. Uh, according to the Mishnah, shepherds were under a ban. They were regarded as thieves, and, and at this time in Jewish history, the only people that were considered lower than the shepherds were lepers. That's where they stood on the social ladder. Some scholars speculate that the only reason the flocks were so close that night was because these men were keeping the sacrificial animals for the temple. See, God only comes to those who sense their need. God does not come to those who are self-sufficient. The gospel is not for those who think they have it all together. The gospel is for those who know that they need Jesus. The gospel is for those who know that the only way that they could be made right with God is not how they live, is not their church attendance, it's not their money, it's not their social clout. It's only through Jesus that they're made right with the Father. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. What's he say? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so the first group of people that God Almighty chooses to announce the birth of his son to are a bunch of sorry, ragged, thieving shepherds. And I don't think we get the scandal of this. Like, like, like if Jesus chose to be born in Spearman, Texas, right? And the angels decided to, to, to show up on the north side of town over here or maybe back here at the government housing. Or if you really want to feel the weight of it, maybe to some of those trailers that surround some of the pig farms around town. 
And if that's the first group of people that God decides to tell that the birth of his son is here, you think there might be a little bit of a scandal in town? I mean, I do, right? I, 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 can, I can hear it now. Well, we're better than they are. Half of them are on that government welfare. And people out there, they're illegal. They shouldn't even be here in the first place. I can't believe God would choose them and say that his son is born. But that's the scandal of the gospel. And that's what happens with these shepherds, is that they're out there in the, out there in the fields, right? And get your mind around this. They're probably out there passing a cigarette, passing a bottle, counting up all the loot and all the things that they stole. And all of a sudden, a bright light shines on them. And all of a sudden, they're probably like a bunch of Baptists drinking a beer and the preacher shows up, right? Right? Throwing the cigarette out and trying to stomp it out, right? They're trying to cover it up, thinking Bethlehem PD's there. Like, what's going on? And it says that they felt great fear, or the old King James Version says they were sore afraid, like I love that line. Or how Kinley's Version said that they were just terrified. And the angel shows up and he says, hey, guess what? I've got good news. You guys are cool, all right? All right, pick your cigarette back up. It's all good, man. All right? I got good news. A Savior's been born for you tonight. And let me tell you where you can find him. And then he gives them details of what they can find, what to look for, and where he'll be. Folks, listen. God calls people to himself who are undesirable. They are unlikely. They are unhealthy. They are usually the last people you would ever think that God could use. Those are the ones that God uses if you just study the Bible at all, you'll see that this is the pattern throughout the whole thing. In fact, most of the time in the Bible, being super strong and awesome usually disqualified you from allowing God to use you. Like, like think of the story of Gideon. Do y'all remember that one from Sunday school? Remember, Gideon's going to go raise up this army, and he's going to go fight off the Midianites. And so Gideon raises up this army of 22,000 people, and God shows up and says, hey, yeah, uh, <clears throat> listen, it's too many. Right? In Judges chapter 7, verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God says, No, 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 you don't get the credit for saving them. No, 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 no. So 22,000, that's too much. So God says, Shrink it. He shrinks it down to 10,000. God shows back up and he goes, Yeah, that's still too many. Way too many. Shrink it. Shrinks it again, and he shrinks it down to 300 people. And if you read the story, you find out that these 300 men defeat an army that most believe numbered in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. See, God glorifies himself through the weakness of men, which should cause us to rejoice because he rescued shepherds like you and me. See, we tend to forget that we are just as bad off as the shepherds, don't we? See, I think that's why the scandal would break out if Jesus showed up to one of those places or got announced to one of those places because we tend to think we're a little bit better than other people or those people. We love to play this game, especially in our middle to upper class world where we don't think we're bad people. I mean, sure, you know some bad people, but, but you're not one of those bad people. But you know a few bad people, but you're not one of them. Right? Like, you're, you're not somebody who, who lies. I mean, yeah, you tell a lie every now and then, or, or you may say something that's not true from time to time, but, but you're not a liar. The problem is, is you're a liar, right? You're a liar. You, you don't get to say I lie from time to time, but I'm not a liar. No, you're a liar. 
I mean, if you're real honest, it makes your heart angry when good things happen to people that you don't think good things should happen to. It makes your heart happy when bad things happen to people that you think bad things should happen to. I mean, of course, all you deserve is good, not bad. Nothing bad should ever happen to you or your families, but to other people, that's fine. You and I both love things, pursue things, cherish things more than we cherish the God of the universe. I can prove it to you. This Christmas, what is most of us going to make it about? Family. And we've elevated the idol of family over God Almighty and what he chose to do for us at Christmas time. We all do it. You've had anger and rage in your heart. You lust, either physically and sexually or emotionally and romantically. There is lust in your heart. Listen, go through all the Ten Commandments, and we could, but we don't have time, and you all fail. I fail. Every one of us in this room is wicked and depraved. And so when the angel shows up and says, good news for all people, that means you too. See, I think the thing that would change for us as a church is if we would stop thinking that all the bad people are out there and instead of turn our finger on ourselves and say, no, I'm the problem. I'm the bad person. I don't just know bad people. I am a bad person, right? Uh, Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien had this great line where he said that after a defeat and respite, evil always takes another shape and it grows again. And if you think about it, it's been that way throughout all of history, hasn't it? It's like even with all of our medical advances, our technological advances, are things any better? I mean, go home, turn on the news today, and you're going to see fear all over the place, right? If you're on the right, right, we've got this massive army coming up. They're going to invade us down south. We've got to get that wall up, right? And everybody's freaking out. If you're on the left, the earth's just going to melt like a candle pretty soon, right? Because all your cows are stinking everything up, okay? And everybody's fearful. Let me tell you why they're fearful, It's just like Tolkien said, they're fearful because they know that the ultimate source of darkness is not out there, it's right here. It's inside the hearts of every single human being, no matter where they find themselves politically, socially, monetarily, it's all inside of us. Martin Luther's famous quote is that human nature is curved in on itself, which means that we're radically self-absorbed to the point that we don't even know how self-absorbed we are, which is why we play the silly game where we go, well, I'm not bad, he's bad, she's bad, I'm not bad, I'm good, they're bad, I'm, I'm a good person. And so we spend our time trying to find all the bad people and we fail to see that you are the bad person. All right? And I know I'm making you feel bad. Merry Christmas. But I hope you do because, see, listen... Now maybe you'll see how amazing the message of the angels is. Good news. Good news. A Savior has been born to forgive sinful shepherds like you and like me. Like how incredible is it that God would choose to save somebody like us? God only comes to those who know they're poor in spirit. God only comes to those who know that no matter how much money they have, no matter how much social clout that they carry, that they are still wicked. To those who know they can't save themselves, the angel shows up and says, good news, you can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You're a bad person, but guess what? There is someone who can save you and he was born tonight. And you'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and you'll find him lying in a rough wooden manger. And folks, what I want you to see is that right at the beginning of his life, we see the pattern that Jesus is going to use to redeem us. So he's laid in a rough wooden feeding trough. 
but later he'll be nailed to a wooden cross. He's rejected by an innkeeper, but later the entire population will scream out, crucify, crucify. He's wrapped in old cloths, but later he'll be stripped naked and his last possession, an old garment, will be sold and he will be killed. Here he's rejected by the world, but on the cross, he's even rejected by his father. He gets what we deserve. That's why hundreds of years before he was born, the prophet Isaiah would say this in Isaiah 53, 3 through 5, that he was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and antiquated with grief, as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus was rejected so that you and I could be accepted. There was no room for him so you and I could dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what it means then is this, is that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are accepted by God because of what Jesus has done. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of the life that Jesus lived in your place. Because of the death that Jesus died for your sins. Because of his resurrection, which showed you that the check he wrote for those sins cleared the bank. And that is the only thing that you get to brag in and boast about. And since we've been accepted by Jesus, what it means is this, and this is good news for some of us at Christmas, that no matter what we face in this life, no amount of trial or difficulty or hardship, it means that none of those things can separate us from his love because he did what we could not do. And that on the other side of this life of trials and difficulty and tribulations is the promise of an eternity with our Savior forever and ever and ever. So what it means is that on the dawning of the second advent, we don't have to worry if we've done enough to be welcomed into God's kingdom. Because you haven't. But Jesus did. And if we've trusted in Jesus, we have this guarantee that he will welcome us in because of what he did for us. But the gift of Jesus' righteousness only comes to those who know they're poor in spirit. It only comes to those who know that they really are wicked and need a savior. And so what I would say to you is this, is that some of you are in here and you don't know Jesus. There's never been a moment in your life where you've really looked inside your heart to realize what's really in there. And today, for some reason, something's pulling on your heart. That's the Holy Spirit wooing you and calling you and trying and opening your heart to save you to the gospel. So today, don't push him out. Don't reject him. Instead, put your faith and trust in Jesus. Come and talk to me. Talk to a friend and say, I don't know Jesus, but today he saved me and changed me. And get that right. Believers, could we just look inside ourselves and realize that the bad people aren't out there, that we're the bad person, but that Jesus Christ loved us enough that he was willing to do what we could not do, and he was willing to be born into a rough, nasty manger and to grow up and live a life we should have, to die a death we deserve, to take our place. And so this Christmas morning, as we get ready to wake up and celebrate the gifts and the kids and all the wonderful things that come with it, we might also look to Jesus and remember that that's what it's really about. And I pray that as Christians, not just at Christmas, but of every day of our lives, that we remember 
that Jesus came to save shepherds like us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30-31 through 31 says this, Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that is, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for all that you've given us. I thank you for your gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, help us all to see that we were in a bad place. That apart from the love and mercy of Jesus, not one of us could be saved. And so I pray today that we would turn our eyes to Jesus, thanking Him and singing to Him for all that He's done for us. I pray if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that today, Father, as the gospel has been preached and proclaimed, that hearts have been opened, that lives have been changed, and that you have worked salvation in lives and hearts today. We love you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand. We're going to sing to Jesus.